Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And this week, like many weeks now, we are staying home. And since we're stuck here, why not focus on the archaeology of households? Yeah, we are here to distract you from your household by talking about how archaeologists reconstruct other households. So relax for a bit while we take you through some home-away-from-home archaeology. Yeah, it's like MTV Cribs. Thousands of years ago. Well, some of them aren't. True. But MTV old cribs. <laughs> yes. Get at me, producers. <laughs> <laughs> Which at this point is just MTV cribs. That's true. So hey. household archaeology is a fairly new discipline in the scheme of things uh, and was made possible by some major shifts in the way archaeologists view the past and our relationship to what happened in it. So I'm going to give you some quick and dirty archaeological theory here. Don't panic. Come back. Wait, come back. Yeah. So this is good. (laughs) This is, I feel pretty good about this. Uh, Back when archaeology was just a baby discipline, much of the focus was put on classifying material into categories and using those classified categories to associate a culture with them. So let's say excavators found gray ceramics with blue speckles at a site. Sounds nice. Yeah. Just your, just us somewhere. Yep. They'd call it blue speckleware, and that would be the blue speckleware culture. And when other archaeologists found the same ceramics, uh, they found blue speckleware ceramics a hundred miles away at another site, they could call that site part of the blue speckleware culture too. So the assumption here would be that these two sites shared some kind of identity or ethnicity. So because the, they are the blue speckleware people. Yes. Those who the, produce blue speckleware. Yeah. So the blue speckleware st- is a stand-in or a proxy for human beings. And so as their excavations continue, maybe they find other ceramics that look completely different in lower horizons. So perhaps the blue speckleware people invaded the second location and either drove out or subdued the locals. If you've listened to us before, you probably can see some of the flaws in this logic. <laughs> It's a baby discipline. (laughs) Yeah, it's learning. So this old style of archaeology is known as historic cultural. And it relied on the concept of cultural diffusion, where one group's norms and technologies gradually spread and were adopted by neighboring groups. Um, There were... There are some severe limitations to this theoretical construct, and it it allows for some very racist and otherwise bigoted views to thrive. But it's also can help uh, sort of helps put into perspective when we talk about how there are like, you know, different wares or different cultures. When we've talked about these things in in the past, in Mm -hmm. past episodes, um, there are things that 
kind of persist in archaeology because yeah. they are just the mainstays and they are the things that are from this old period of archaeology as a discipline. Yeah, but it turns out pots are not people. Yes. <laughs> so, so this was this happened for the first, you know, hundred or so years that archaeology existed. And then in the 1960s, there was something of a revolution in archaeology and archaeological thought. It was known as new archaeology because we are creative people. <laughs> capital N, capital A, new archaeology. And it proposed that rather than evidence of ideas being spread through diffusion, the archaeological record reflects a given population's, like any given population's adaptation to its specific environment. So new archaeology sought to apply the scientific method. And it's because of this that the movement has come to be known as processual archaeology. So this they is are what applying I a process to accept. I always get processual and post-processual archaeology mixed up for no reason other than the names are similar. <laughs> yeah. So processual archaeology is sort of the scientific and scienceifying of archaeology. Right. Rather than just saying, um, you know, I... I'm here with my majestic mustache and lots of assumptions and a like firm grounding in like Christian tradition. And from here, I am going to tell you how recreate life in the right. past. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, so moving away from that, this is, this is the swing of the pendulum in the other direction where it's like quantify everything. Right. Right. Data. Well, actually, data, data. so the pendulum starts Swinging. So we sort of got it in the yes. middle with the cultural historical where it's not doing a whole lot. And then it swings to data. And so processual archaeologists rejected these culture historical archaeologies because it relied heavily on assumption and there was nothing that could be done. There was nothing that could be tested repeatedly and produce good data. So people were sort of anxious to to have archaeology be a science instead of sort of the um, loosely scientific humanities discipline that it had started off being. Yeah. And, and so it's something that you, you needed to ask questions. And mm -hmm. so in order, and you need to ask your questions and you need to be able to find answers for your questions. And so they did this by developing models, testing theories, and making good use of the many developing technologies that could be used to measure, quantify, and statistically analyze archaeological materials. So they used this data in conjunction with ethnographic observations. And so this was the rise of um, ethnoarchaeology. Mm -hmm. And so they would study living communities to try to come up with general laws about how people do. And one of the <laughs> one of the poster boys of processual archaeology was Lewis Benford, who should probably get his own episode sometime because he's heard a, of him. <laughs> he was a very big deal in archaeology. Um, yeah. And so it was in processual archaeology's heyday that the archaeology of households first got some attention, since what happens in a household plays a significant role in the economic and ecological processes that researchers were out there trying to quantify and describe. However, it wasn't until the arrival of post-processual archaeology that the household got its due. Mm -hmm. So post-processual archaeology came about in the 1980s and served as the, quote, radical critique, end quote, of the discipline that was seen as uh, of a discipline that was seen as rigid and positivist in its pursuit of laws about human behavior in existence. It's just so, the other swing of the pendulum. Yeah. So this idea that you can't know, like you don't know anything unless you can repeat a test and prove it 
and and so they were following the scientific method yeah yeah so in in the same way that physics has laws or chemistry has laws about how things react predictably or how you how should you should expect entities to interact these people in in processual they're trying to do the same thing with the archaeological record yeah so processual archaeology is looking at human as as groups of humans as systems yeah as these objective systems but post-processual archaeology is swinging to the other the other direction towards sort of so it's from from data to humanity to to humanity but also um going from objectivity to subjectivity. Yeah. So post-processual archaeology pulled heavily from sociological research and tried to open up the field to the infinite possibilities for motivations of human behavior because humans sometimes just do things. (laughs) Anyone who's ever been in a group of humans knows that it's not a predictable system. Yeah. And so they, they did this by incorporating structural, symbolic and Marxist perspectives. And so in some ways, it, it was the pendulum swinging to the other side. Processual archaeology sought objectivity in the absolute, while post-processual archaeology rejected the possibility of objectivity, uh, where because we are subjective beings studying right. ourselves, we can't be objective. Right. And that's what, in my opinion, is the most valuable legacy of the post-processional movement. It's the acknowledgement of the subjectivity and the researcher. So throughout much of the history of the discipline, huge swaths of the population have been overlooked and excluded from narratives of the past. How are we supposed to develop accurate models of government, economy, and ideology like that? Because bad, bad ones. Exactly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And so through the critiques from the post-processual movement, archaeology today is moving toward a more comprehensive and nuanced look at how societies function and have functioned. And one of the fundamental building blocks of society is the household. And so when I say household in this episode, I don't necessarily mean the, the structure in which a family unit lives. I'm talking about what we can think of as the atomic unit of the society. So if you break down a society into its classes or its neighborhoods or its castes or whatever, you break it down and break it down and break it down. And what you finally get to that you can't really break down anymore before it stops having function. Right. It's a household. Until it's the individual. So it's like one step up from the individual. But the the individual has to interact with other individuals to form a society. So so the individual isn't really the the fundamental building block. It's sort of how we are. So individuals would be like the electrons and the neutrons. Maybe go with amino acids. I'm talking about atoms. <laughs> okay. They're the so, subatomic humans are individuals are the subatomic particles. That, the actual functioning unit is the household. Yes. It's the atomic unit of a society. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the household is a unit of people living together, usually with some familiar relationship. And in some cases, sure, they all live in the same building. But in some societies, they don't all live in the same building, but it's still a household. Mm-hmm. Um, and in some in some uh, places, multiple households can be in the same building. And so it's this household that serves as the setting in which ideology like religion, identity, class, gender and so forth is negotiated through every interaction every day. And so this is this is what pulls from the when I was saying like social theory, like this mm-hmm. is that idea of every interaction that you have with your environment and with other people in it 
builds to this cumulative, uh, what Bourdieu calls the habitus that can, that, that serves as the frame for every interaction you will have. So it's not, it's, so it's sort of the setting in which sort of the emotional, intellectual, sort of memory-based uh, setting in which you will have every other interaction. So it's not that it predicts what you will do. No, it just informs it. It gives you everything that you need in order to keep having those interactions. Yes. Um, and so that's what a household is. And for some societies, this comes through in language. Um, several languages use the same word to describe a house that people live in, a family unit, and the fundamental unit of society with the same word. I mean, like I just said that with household. It can mean all those things in English, just like oikos meant all those things in Greek. A means all those things in Sumerian. <laughs> and per meant that in ancient Egyptian. It is Do we in know do we know that that's how that was pronounced? Or is that one of those ancient Egyptian things that's like, who knows? Yeah, that's, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay. Symbolized by the letters PR, but who knows? Yeah, I don't know what the vowels are in there. Uh-huh. So, so the, these, d- it depends on the context, but they do function in all of those different directions. Yeah. And so I know this is probably more archaeological theory and more theory in general than anyone was asking for. And that some of it is a little heady and eh. But I promise that yeah. once we start thinking about household archaeology and the archaeologies of households, y'all are going to see that we've been telling you about it all along here at The Dirt and you just didn't have a name for it, which is cool. Yeah. That that there is. Yeah. So um, but first, Anna. Hello. Can you tell us a little bit more about what household archaeology set out to do when it first came into its own in the 90s? Yeah. My, my old professors. I I can do that. Let's let's put ourselves back in the nineties. Uh, I'm there. Uh, <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, I can tell you about household archaeology, and by that I mean I can tell you what other people wrote about it because this is in the next town over from my wheelhouse. But in this case, I've excerpted some bits from a chapter by Ruth Tringham, which actually is- came from um, a keynote. That chapter was mm, mm-hmm. adapted from a keynote she gave. Okay. Um, But very quickly, first, I wanted to include a little bit about Ruth Tringham herself, since she is um, rather eminent in her field. (laughs) Kind of a big deal. Uh, So I went looking for a good blurb about her and immediately found her entry on her UC Berkeley faculty page. And it is a wee bit spicy. So obviously, that's what I went with. Which is true to life. Yeah, I thought that that might um, (laughs) sort of set the scene for folks. Set the tone, rather. So uh, she writes, I received my PhD in archaeology at the University of Edinburgh with sojourns at Charles University Prague and the then University of Leningrad, USSR. I came to the U.S. as a drained brain hired by Harvard University who did not give me tenure. But I found tenure and happiness at the University of California at Berkeley, where I am currently professor of anthropology. So (laughs) that was the spicy part where she just... And and there at at UC Berkeley, Ruth is one of like a real like core of the anthropologists that pushed that they were a big big part of the post processual critique, yeah. mm-hmm. um, and also with specifically archaeology of households, there are several uh, folks there even today that are really defining what what the discipline looks like worldwide. Yeah. 
Uh, so that was that was the the throwing shade part that I really had a little bit of a giggle at. And then from here on, she's all business. So she continues. My research for the last 30 years has focused on the transformation of early agricultural Neolithic societies of Eastern Europe, where I have directed and published archaeological excavations in former in the former Yugoslavia and Bulgaria. Since 1997, I have expanded this research interest to include Turkey, directing a team from UC Berkeley in the excavation of the 9,000-year-old site of Etelhuyuk. Took a stab at that. think I'm close. Current research focuses on the life histories of buildings and the construction of place. Much of my recent practice of archaeology incorporates the utilization of digital, especially multimedia technology, in the presentation of the process of archaeological interpretation. Um, and she's done some cool stuff with internet media, as she says, um, which maybe we can talk about another time. But um, yeah, sort of she, the idea of constructing that, place digitally is is yeah. She goes from like the very very cool to the what? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I th- uh, I don't think I can handle that. This episode, yeah, I know, so I know. Much, like. <laughs> Um, but, you know, if you're interested in this, look into Ruth Tringham because um, there's some things about constructing archaeological sites in Minecraft, for example, that, uh, you know, seem to have some really cool applications, but it's sort of on the uh, end of things. So yeah. not today. <laughs> what we are going to talk about today is um, excerpted from that chapter from that keynote that she gave. And so um, the chapter is entitled Archaeological Houses, Households housework and the home and then um, starts off with the section archaeologist and the home so this is from 1995 and i've got an excerpt from the article itself and then um, i've broken down the rest of it by bullet points because nobody needs the full thing okay so (laughs) also i thought you would like she is um she's very experimental in her writing style She's yeah, it was really interesting reading her her yeah. writing. It was um much, much more conversational yeah. than you typically get in a um an academic article, which I enjoyed actually. I liked, yeah, I liked and her writing. She does a because she thinks a lot about sort of presentation and representation. I was and those just sorts about of to ask if this is where you got that yes. present. Yeah. So she's she's interested also in uh, you know, you mentioned that above of um capturing the process of Mm -hmm. interpretation yes and being aware of yourself who is the the lens through which the reader sees the interpretation because you can't get away from as as an inherently subjective liver of your own life and your own lived experiences you cannot get away from that as something that's going to color any interpretations of material you have which is what we've said you cannot be objective as a human person it just, you aren't. It's just, you cannot be. So, um, she writes, quote, Archaeologists do not frequently write about homes or the home. We write a lot about architecture, spatial patterns, buildings, dwellings, shelter, and we make inferences about houses. Only recently, in 1995, have we even begun to make explicit inferences about households. But the home is a wildly cultural concept evoking emotional nostalgia whose apparent ambiguity leads it forever beyond the reach of the traditional archaeological record. I think for that, read the processual one. And so it is rationalized as being irrelevant to investigation by archaeologists as being a constant and not a variable in the big picture of human cultural evolution. 
So Tringham then takes a real dive into the construction of her own theories of the roles of house and household in archaeological interpretation. So again, being aware of that process of interpretation. So I'm going to run through a few of these as bullet points. You're welcome, everyone. So number one, trying to talk about household is very dependent on scale. So the size of what you are focusing on. So there's the macro scale where the interpretation is more focused on the development of bigger evolutionary trends. So zooming out to the bigger picture of how a particular population creates their living spaces or their their sort of household groupings over time. And then there's the micro scale, which emphasizes the life histories of individuals or maybe small groups of individuals and their living spaces. And then there's the multi-scale approach, which looks at how the individual, the micro, intersects with the larger macro scale of cultural context. Number two, living spaces have biographies or life histories, just as artifacts or human remains do. These life histories are completely dependent on what Tringham refers to as the actors, those who have agency within the living space, people doing stuff, because people do stuff and make choices and create objects and traces on their landscape within the larger context of things like culture, history, or ecology, which is to say nobody lives in a vacuum. Number three, in examining living spaces, you have to consider things like age and gender and the roles of these categories in whatever cultural group you're looking at. Again, context is super important. And then finally, number four, and I brought this up a little bit earlier, but archaeologists are subject to their own memories, emotions, and conceptualization of home and household, and these notions can color their interpretations. Tringham finishes this chapter by writing, quote, what I am advocating, if anything, is that you listen to your own history and prehistory before you appropriate the ancient home of other places and other times, other here's and now's, which, end quote, which is, I, I really liked that, um, just sort of a, a reminder that you are, even if you view yourself like, like I think I do as more of a, uh, empirical science-based thinker, what you are ultimately doing as an archeologist is recreating human behavior and human lives. And those are messy. And not only that, uh, they're not predictable systems and your interpretations of them are governed by what you've experienced and how you were raised and how you were educated. So, I mean, and they're if you not, go, and they're just not yours. Yeah, it's not. So they, yes. you don't, you don't get to claim them or own them. No, um, and and so it's sort of the line is difficult to tread between. These are interpretations, you know, objectively interpretations of the material that's here, and then sort of whose stories are these to tell? Yeah, like whose whose life histories? You know, who who does these stories belong to? Yeah. Um, well, and I just want to further drive this point home. You mentioned ecology above. And the word ecology comes uh, yes. from the root of oikos. Like the yogurt. Oh, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> Look, that's where most people are going to see that word. I know. <laughs> Honey, can we get some more household yogurt, please? Yeah, some more <laughs> atomic unit of society yogurt. <laughs> so... <laughs> That was back in the 90s. And by now, household archaeology is its own thing. And there are many archaeologists whose work centers on or intersects with households. I happen to um, know that some of them are our listeners. Hello. Yeah. Yay. Hey. Hi. Um, and so and it sort of spread what started out really as as being something that folks focused on in 
Mesoamerica and prehistoric Europe, partially because they were working with folks that were based at UC Berkeley in the late 80s, early 90s, uh, it has spread into other places, and which I'm going to get into now. And so the discipline is summed up really nicely by Miriam Miller, who says, quote, the study of households encompasses a variety of themes from household composition, social structure, and family types to the expression of gender and status. Interaction between household members, multiple households, and the household and outsiders or visitors, and the household and subordinate or superior instances. So, what? so those, so the um, households oh, that like are either head of household or, no, or like, the, the household no, so, itself is. So, um, kind of like maybe more like landlord tenant. Oh, okay, okay. Or um, sharecropper feudal lord sort right, of. So just like power dynamics between yeah, exactly. household groups. Okay, um, as well as consumption patterns, the economic background, and the production and production are topics addressed within household studies. Exciting new areas are explored in households' reproduction and life cycles, as well as domestic cults and construction of identity, but also the perception of space, sensory experience, and the structuring and manipulation of the built environment. All these different aspects mirror households' behavior. In order to track these different components in the archaeological record, the the dwelling, its installations, and the artifacts found therein have to be investigated, end quote. So if you really want to go for it, I'll include a syllabus for Mueller's course at Brown. Um, it's a graduate seminar on household archaeology in the show, show notes, uh, which was really cool to read through. Um, she also coordinated a seminar at the Oriental Institute in 2013. So there's a postdoc at the Oriental Institute that is designed around organizing a two-day seminar that becomes an edited volume. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. yeah. And she held this, um, <laughs> she held this postdoc in 2013 and the edited volume that came out of it is household studies in complex societies, which pulls together case studies from all over Western Asia and the Mediterranean. That um, is both very cool. Like that, that idea of that postdoc, like I can both realize that is very cool. And also not for me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and so, Another very cool thing about it is that the a lot of the things published by the Oriental Institute are available for download. Um, so I'll include a link to this book so you can just read this book if you want. Oh, hey. Um, yeah, uh, that's very it's very generous of them to do that. But you can just was it always like that or is it like that because of uh, restrict like access being limited because of coronavirus? I feel like it's been like that. Okay. But I might be showing my butt and <laughs> stole books. <laughs> Put that butt away. Let's keep going. <laughs> so um, in that volume, uh, one of the cases that I found to be very fun uh, focused on Or and Nippur in Southern Mesopotamia. So when you think of ore, you probably think about now, you probably think about the royal tombs of ore or perhaps texts describing the exploits of kings or economic happenings. Like that's really what ore is famous for. If you think about Nippur, if you think about it at all, you probably associate it with being a major <laughs> religious center for Sumer and Babylonia. Like they have a, a very extensive religious complex and they produced a lot of um, texts and things like religious texts and things that were 
used for a long time elsewhere in Mesopotamia. So you might not think about the average Oregon and what their daily life experience was like, but lucky us, uh, Paolo Brusasco tries to access what that might have been like by taking the static site plans of excavated houses and analyzing them on grounds of access uh, to get a sense of how one would move through them and proximity of the artifacts, features, and finds to get a sense of sort of how intimate different activities were and who was interacting with whom while doing them. Um, and I'm going to just read this direct from his um, his chapter here because it's very cool. <laughs> so uh, finally, access analysis is integrated with phenomenological approaches. So phenomenal phenomenology being using your body as the tool by which you yeah. read something. So stressing multisensory perceptions. Although ancient Mesopotamia people certainly possessed a culture-specific hierarchy of senses, sort of what they, what whether they privileged visual uh, stimuli over auditory stimuli or something, like what mattered the most to them or was the most impressive. Um, modern experimental observations suggest that interpersonal conduct is negotiated within five concentrically nested spaces corresponding to the effectiveness of the human senses. These circles range in decreasing size through vision, hearing, smell, touch, mediated by the use of tools, and direct tactile contact. Vision allows awareness of another person's presence within the co-present zone radius of a radius of 91.4 meters. So that's that's how far within. away you can be and still see somebody. And still see somebody, yeah. Hearing and smell come into play at 30.17 and 9.14 meters, respectively. Oh. So so that's when they get within earshot and within and nose shot. Nose shot? <laughs> Is that a and, and while indirect touch and tactile contact at 2.7 meters and about one meter, respectively. <laughs> so like indirect touch, if you have a stick. Basically, yeah. <laughs> Um, and then a meter is like basically arm's how, length. How far you can reach. Yeah. yeah. And so that's... That is very cool. Isn't this very cool? And so um, what Brusasco proposes <laughs> I is... I wonder how he tested what sniff and distance was. Well, somebody like, else, other people have tested that. <laughs> oh, okay. It's like, no, walk it, closer it's, until I can smell you. It's looking at like at what distance you can um, discern stimuli. Yeah. Using these. No, senses. I understand that. I just like the idea of yeah. testing this with people. Um, so what Brusasco proposes is that these houses in Or, which and Nippur, would which would be multifamily structures with a dominant family and a sort of poor secondary family. Uh, oh, secondary and secondary families sometimes, as we'll see. Uh, they were they were definitely planned and they were used in very specific ways to engender a desired effect in visitors and residents. For example, the outer house um, was designed to give the impression of spaciousness to passersby by designing it with asymmetrical entry points so that, you know, it looked bigger than it was. Huh. Um, and so it was just like an optical illusion. And then the courtyard would be designed to give that same impression of spaciousness by being painted bright white, like bright white plaster. Oh, that sounds like a nightmare. Like to clean. To clean. But also, can you imagine how, well, this is something else to think about, how glaring it would yeah, be, glaringly bright. 
like in the yeah. like southern Mesopotamian sun. Squinting, just thinking about it. Yeah. So he described, which, perfect. He describes the effect of light and shadow, both visual in terms of temperature on the visitor, who would likely very much enjoy the curb appeal. So you would kind of, you go, what you would do is you would come in, um, you would come into the building off center and there would be something of a passageway to, to get, so you go along the side of the house and then you can enter into the courtyard and then off of the courtyard are other rooms, which would be like living spaces. Right. It's like a, the, it's like a little, a little apartment set up. Yeah. And so you kind have of. the, and so you, you're going from the hot street to the nice, cool uh, interior passageway. And then the way the lighting would work is the primary house would look better <laughs> yeah. Well, um, it would it would just look better. Yeah. And and then you would um, you you come out into the courtyard and you're like, whoa, it's so big and bright. And wow. Like, oh, my eyes. Wow. Dang. Yeah. And so um, he also considers the locations of ovens and hearths throughout the house, um, which I found this part very interesting, which would have yeah. allowed for privacy and cooking activities and prevented like weird smells. Like, like if someone a, cooks fish, somebody's cooking fish and somebody's cooking like falafel. And like if you were like standing, you know, like it's just a lot of smell all at once. I get like, it. It, a, prevents, a lot of, it prevents. Well, that. if you're like trying to hang out in the courtyard and everything smells like weird fish, like that's unpleasant. Not very pleasant. Yeah, exactly. So there would be privacy and it wouldn't be so smelly. And then also how passageways were designed for quiet travel versus the noisy courtyard where you have places that have tile, places that don't have tile. And so like what footfalls would sound like versus in, exactly. in one place versus another. Cool. Yeah. And so if you find all of this interesting, you will I find do. it even interestinger when Brusasco brings in textual evidence. Oh, dang. Um, so not only do they does he cite things like um, if a man's house, like sort of idiomatic things, like if a man's house has an entrance from the center, his wife will come out into the street and harass him all days. <laughs> Am I right? But if if the entr- if the if the entrance is to the side, it will be a happy home. Or like <laughs> if if a man's house has like peeling plaster, ruin will come to that house or something. It's just sort of like who wrote that? The household association, like the, I know, it the does, homeowners, it does, the HOA. It does very much feel like that, uh, where it's just sort of like you know tips for living kind of kind of things and then um but the texts that are very interesting is um we we all know by now that folks in or love to keep records of everything boy did they and houses had archive rooms so it would be like <laughs> libraries well no not so much libraries as Offices? like the safe yeah. like the safe in the basement I don't, like the, that I you keep like you know, your birth certificates and stuff in or like uh, the okay. deed to the house, things like yeah. that. In like, my family, it's a, a big old filing cabinet, but yes. Yeah. <laughs> in, in my family house, it's a uh, gun cabinet. I mean, to each their own. It's, it's fireproof. It's <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's where dad put uh, their dog's baby teeth. Oh, <laughs> he kept her baby teeth. They really do think she's a child. I told you. Um, 
And mom's like, we did it for you. And I'm like, doesn't. That does not track. (laughs) So um, in one of these houses, you can track the family through a few different generations. And and he looks at wills and deeds in which brothers inherit shares of the family house. So when I said like dominant and secondary families, it'd be like the eldest son gets more. And so he like the eldest, perhaps the eldest son or someone else would get the the bigger living space and the sort of deadbeat son gets like the the less great one and then like the other okay. son like gets gets a, gets a pretty nice one you know it's like it's it's divvied up and that results in some remodeling when one guy's son also takes up residence with his family so one of the rooms is um a a door is is blocked off is made into a wall oh okay so um and so it's no longer the the entry the entryway and you you if you look at the article you'll see how it changes um there's like there's fun little lines it's like here's like the smell zones and so you have smells over here and smells over here and so you like see how illustrated with little stink lines yeah basically yeah So not only do the texts speak to the evolution of a house as a domestic setting, but it also informs the business experiences of the business dealings of the family. Um, So they had clients and colleagues to impress. And as we learn from the contracts and in one very awkward case, the lawsuits um, and other texts that give a lens into the goings on of these houses. So you could see you get a better sense of how the household is interacting with external parties and um i have a question yes um this this is going somewhere i promise but um is there a common name like first of all in or and nippur did people have family names so is it like would you take your father's name or um did did people have last names no i mean um I do know what you mean. They didn't do like patronymics or things like that. They did so-and-so, the son of so-and-so. Okay. So he and had then, a completely individual name based on his and his father's name or whatever. And so, yeah. So his name would be, so he would have his own name, but he would be contextualized right. in these writings. Okay. And I was just kind of wondering if there could be a, a possible version of keeping up with the Joneses, but translated into so what assyriologists do in these situations is they will write they will talk about the the line of whomever okay um so it'd be like the line of jones yeah so names in mesopotamia usually have a a god and then a verb right we've talked about this like yeah uh yes okay okay it could it could be that that just happened to be um, a god that that this this family or perhaps the business that they were in or some kind of um, heritage, like relationship with within with the cult of Enlil, um, and then they've got um so Enlil Isu and Enlil Akisham are the two that are living in the house, and then when I said the 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 son moves in, yes, and, and so he moves in and they block off that room. That guy's name is Ili Ipilsham. I, sorry, Ipalsam. So in that case, it's Ili. It just means gods. So the people will have names like Nabu has given me a son or 
all praise to Shamash or things like that. Kind of like and, Puritan names from the like 1600s, which is like, if it had not been for Christ, where would we be? Or something like that. Really? Yeah. Oh yeah, they're wild. <laughs> yeah, that was so. that was a poor remembering of something that's very much like if it had not been for Christ's uh, absolving of our sins, thou would hadst been cursed or whatever. Good Lord. Yeah. Well, exactly. Oh, somebody's name. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so, so yes. So you, you get a real sense. And so when I was a student and some of the very poor work that I did um, with <laughs> I've owned it with um, like Acadian um, research is you you get to learn you get to watch people watch families sort of move through time when you start to see like who's married to whom like who marries into which families Uh, and who's in business dealings with whom you get to you get to gossip sort of. Yeah, you get a you. So there's a lot of work that's been done in social network analysis. And so Mm -hmm. um, the so the like digital cuneiform and like digital humanities with cuneiform studies has done a lot in terms of mapping social networks. And so you can look at how extensively uh, individual families are involved with one another in in cities in specific periods of time. Some places you have over five years, some places you see over 20, some places you see sort of drop off and then peck back up like, a you know, over the course of 150 years, you'll see like a gap, but then you'll see that somebody's grandson, you know, so-and-so, son of so-and-so, son of so-and-so, well, that oldest so-and-so you saw get married in the, the most recent text before that that you found Um, and because you have because there are dates there are dates that are sort of like you know in like in regnal years usually so it's in the however like the 18th so in the you know eighth year of of Hammurabi Mm -hmm. but it wouldn't be Hammurabi because this is in or but you know what I'm saying like in the yeah like in the eighth year of this king or like in the year in the year that the eclipse happened or like those sorts of, so you have these ways to anchor them in time and then you follow, you follow names. Cool. Yeah. And, and you can also kind of follow like properties too. Um, And it's time detective. Yeah. By combining the textual evidence with the archeological evidence and applying this like multi-sensory analytical approach, which is like, I can't understate, like this is pretty radical for Mesopotamian archaeology. <laughs> like it's very this, cool. This is this is like this is pretty radical for like archaeologies that are based in, you know, you've got your like philology of the folks reading texts, and then you've got the people who are digging up temples, and like these very like old school archaeology like mm-hmm. places where the, the research happens. So by having these newer approaches, it's really changing the experience of the past and resulting in a more lived in human look at ancient Mesopotamians. Which is kind of more fun to read about. Oh, definitely. Because as our professor at Bryn Mawr once said, in the past, statistically, 
most people weren't Asher Bonipal. Yeah, they were just like regular people. <laughs> and sometimes what you want to learn about is what they were doing. Yeah. Let's take a very quick break for an ad and then back to households. It's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, culturomedia.com, then please do. Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O, and it's where we promote all of our live events. We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Culturo when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. Culturomedia.com. Chris Webster here, founder of the APN and host of several shows. I just wanted to let you know about our membership program and what it offers. Members of the APN get, for just $7.99 a month or cheaper if you pay for the year, ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to me on the breaks, membership in our Slack team so you can continue the conversation with hosts and other members, and exclusive access to any of our live event recordings. Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. All right, now that we're back, for another look at a way to construct the history of households, we look to the children. And by we, I mean Kristen DeLucia, or possibly DeLucia. I believe the children are our past. I see what you did there. Thank you. Yep. I just wanted to give that a moment to, to sit. Yeah, let it breathe. <laughs> yeah. So Kristen DeLucia, DeLucia, who wrote an article titled A Child's House, Social Memory, Identity, and the Construction of Childhood in Early Post-Classic Mexican Households. Or, as I have alternatively titled it, What Anyone Think of the Children? And so DeLucia writes... In this article, I do not simply argue that children are important and worthy of study, but that we fundamentally cannot study households without looking at children. Households are composed of both adults and children, and an analysis that only considers the activities and strategies of adults in the absence of children generates an image of a fictitious adult-centered world. Archaeologists primarily conceptualize houses as places of production and consumption, ritual activity, and social and political interaction. However, houses were also places where adults raised children, where children grew and were socialized, and where children socialized adults. Children were not just a part of households, they were omnipresent in most aspects of daily life. They shaped the decisions and motivations of adults and influenced the structure and organization of daily activities and household space. For those of you listening who are socially isolating with young children. How's this feeling right about now? <laughs> a little too real? Furthermore, children's material culture is hardly inconsequential. Rather, it serves to both create and disrupt social norms and daily life, making children central to understanding broader mechanisms of change and continuity. Thus, by ignoring children, we can only come up with incomplete, if not flawed, understandings of archaeological data. So, Let's talk about childhood in ancient Mexico. And this is further quoted from Delucia's article. 
Much of our current understanding of childhood in ancient Mexico is based on colonial period documents. In the Primeros Memorales, Bernardino de Sahagún defines stages of childhood in ancient Mexico, including the small child, makes mud balls and cries out. Nice. Child, I mean, same. Child, does not yet understand. Mm. Same. Youth, cuts wood, or maiden, spins and weaves. Grown youth, master of youths, or grown maiden, spins but does not grind maize. And grown youth of marriageable age, cultivates the soil. Or young marriageable maiden, grinds corn and prepares food. Indicating that while older children were productive members of society, they were not immediately considered to be of marriageable age. You got to be able to grind corn first. And prepare um, food. And prepare food. Yes. Well, I guess it makes sense. You got to be able to feed yourself or else you end up. Yeah, me. that's not use. Like that's... It's like going off out in the world without knowing how to, you know, fold your laundry or cook food. It's like there's basic skills that you should probably have. I'm feeling really attacked right now. <laughs> you know how to fold your laundry. Just because you know how doesn't mean you have to do it. You're a grown-up. So Sahagun further outlines divisions of childhood in the Florentine Codex. It's covered in spinach. Including... (laughs) (laughs) That's so dumb. Thank you. It's literally why I'm here. Uh, Including baby, suckling or within the womb. Infant, undefined. Which, like, if you've ever seen an infant. Yes. (laughs) There's one. undefined they're blobby uh little child less than five or six years old child of five or six years old boy undefined and youth slash maiden undefined the infant and small child were both depicted so this is in a codex in codices which were typically very lavishly illustrated so that's when i say depicted that's what that means Uh, So the infant and small child were both depicted as naked, while the small boy was wearing clothing similar to that of an adult, emphasizing social distinctions between older and younger children. Documents therefore suggest that the Aztecs divided childhood into several phases, minimally infancy, childhood, and adolescence, with the likelihood that even more divisions were culturally defined, bringing home the point that this stuff is very nuanced, and often you don't quite get at that nuance. Um, in the archaeological record, but with documents added, like with historical documents, you know, that can add some some flavor. Um, and, you know, that that totally makes sense, because if you've ever seen a baby, they are just little blobby potatoes for a while. And then at least in Aztec society, as shown here, they're of an age to play and, and do some things, but not necessarily to contribute economically to the household. But then they reach an age where they're... Um, able to help around the house and they become part of the the production role of the household rather than just the consumption one. Um, and I thought this was, this was, this is pulled from that same article as well. And I thought it was very sweet quote, babies were greatly loved, coveted and cared for in Aztec society. When babies were born, they were referred to as precious necklace, precious feather, precious green stone, precious bracelet, precious turquoise, which doesn't quite translate, you know, it's but very- just the idea of, but it's it's very cute to think of them as like a precious necklace or like some yeah. kind of jewelry because they kind of cling they to hang. you. Yeah, 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 they hang on you. And it's just I love imagining. I love when you can re- reconstruct aspects of a culture that has stretched back thousands of years and you can still imagine, you know, a parent kind of cooing to their child and calling them really embarrassing nicknames. <laughs> <laughs> Baby bracelet. Um 
So the Aztecs additionally believed that the souls of dead infants did not go to the land of the dead, where adults did, but rather to a separate location in the afterworld, Chichihualcuaco, where they could be nursed by a tree of breasts while they waited to be reborn. Hmm. According to scholar Alfredo Lopez Austin, the death of breastfeeding babies was, quote, nothing but a return to heaven, the expectation of another opportunity to return to Earth's surface. They would again be placed in maternal wombs, end quote. And I thought that was really really, nice. Yeah. And I, I purposely included this because I thought it was really interesting. It kind of harkens back to the idea that we touched on when talking about Lamashtu way, 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 way back. Um, Well, and like last week. Yeah, but I, I think I actually ended up cutting most of that out oh, of the episode. Okay. Yeah, so I wanted to touch on it again because Lamashtu's role is often to sort of do God-sanctioned cullings of yeah. people, but it's in order to maintain kind of a cosmic balance, which makes the death of a loved one, particularly a child, kind of bearable because it's sort of in order for the the cosmic balance to remain. Um, this had to happen, sort of a way of explaining why bad things happen when, when you haven't really done anything wrong. Yeah, it's not senseless anymore. Like there's a there's a reason. Right. And and I thought that this kind of represented sort of a similar way of conceptualizing something as absolutely devastating as the, the death of an infant, which would be sort of they'll be back. Not necessarily to the same mother which was what I inferred from from this. It's just sort of if a breastfeeding baby dies, they get they get kind of a redo. Yeah. They get a get a mulligan, which I, yeah, I thought that was just sort of a um, touching. Yeah. Not all archaeologists have ignored the role of children in ancient Mexico. A researcher named Michael Lind in the 80s suggested that crudely made miniature vessels found in household contexts throughout the, the Nochichlan Valley functioned as toys and were used in the enculturation of Mishti girls. So enculturation is such a it's kind of an ominous word, but just right. to like just, yeah, just familiarizing them with the stuff around them. The miniature vessels are present in large quantities in household middens and replicate large ceramic vessels used in food preparation and crude attempts at replicating high status wares. So it's like so tea either, sets. Yeah, exactly. It's like, so the kids are making them or their parents are making kind of cruddy versions for them. Um, so nice. they can like feed their dolls. Yeah. <laughs> 20th century Mishti children played with miniature ceramic vessels very similar to those found archaeologically. So that sort of continued. Jeffrey and Sharice McCafferty in 2006 analyzed children's burials at Cholula. They found that whistles, flutes, ceramic balls, and figurines were associated with children's burials. And they suggested, pretty sensibly, I think, that these items were toys. And the article then runs through a brief analysis of several types of material culture that are considered to be either children's playthings or things made by children in emulation of the ceramics and other household objects made by adults. So like little figurines and little versions, like I said, of, of larger ceramic vessels and things that are very clearly made by kids, I would say. (laughs) It's kind of sweet seeing them in the, in the article. It's just like, I remember fourth grade art class. Um, And the article concludes Quote, children were essential to the functioning and continuity of the household. In life, children were vital to household economic production and thereby represented the promise of future economic success. That's how I look at my future kids. In death, children were fundamental to household reproduction and social continuity. 
More importantly, by asking who used these artifacts and how did they get here, we are forced to consider children's contributions and consequently avoid adult-centered interpretations in our analyses. When we begin to look at artifacts and archaeological deposits as the products of individuals rather than abstract forces, we find that children both used and created material culture, as is reflected in many of the archaeological deposits, typically assumed to be the products of adult behavior. And this is my favorite part of the article just because, like, I know many people with young children right now. <laughs> Any parent knows the effect that children have on the distribution and deposition of material culture. Children are messy and more likely to drop, break, or lose objects than adults. I don't know. Thus, an archaeology of households that does not consider children cannot really be an archaeology of households at all. So, yeah, for those of you sheltered in place with younger kiddos, it's yeah. been going on forever. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, how about we give folks one more chance to take a take a quick look at the distribution and deposition of material culture around them um, <laughs> with uh, another quick ad break. And then I'm going to bring it on home. As it were. As it were. This is Chris Webster with the APN. I'm also a project manager for several industries. I wouldn't be able to keep on track with really anything if it wasn't for Motion. With Motion, I just say what I need to do, how long I think it will take, what sort of priority I think it has, and Motion builds my day for me. It'll even build in breaks because, let's be honest, it's hard to remember to stop to eat lunch sometimes. So head over to arcpodnet.com motion for a free trial and a discount if you sign up. You'll kick back a small amount to the APN if you do. That's arcpodnet.com motion. Hey, fans of APN Podcasts, we've got lots of designs over at our Tee Public store. Every purchase helps out the APN with a few cents back to us. Check out the high-quality t-shirts, stickers, phone cases, coffee mugs, and a lot more. There are lots of colors to choose from in most of those items, and Tee Public often runs 30% discounts. So check out the store at arcpodnet.com shop. That's arcpodnet.com shop, and click on the link. I want to wrap up this episode with a more recent historical example, which comes to us from a master's thesis by Laura Gwyn Vernon um, at University of Denver, um, entitled Gender, Social Networks, and Labor Disputes, Household Archaeology at the Industrial Mine Camp. And so I'm going to read the abstract now. <laughs> Sorry, I, I read that as Industrial Mime Camp. Hmm. Uh, I would love to. It would track that mimes would unionize. <laughs> Very quietly. <laughs> The industrial mine at Superior, operating from 1895 to 1945, was one of many coal mines situated within a region known as the Colorado Northern Coal Fields. It is exceptional only in that it was one of the largest coal producers in the area and because it was the sole mine in the region with both a company town and a company store. Through comparative analysis with the previously investigated mine camp in the southern Colorado coal fields at Berwind, this thesis examines how, coal, how camp housing structured the lives of women living at the industrial mine, as well as how women's social networks may have played a role in creating the solidarity needed to fuel labor movements in the early half of the 20th century. Archaeological investigation and oral histories highlight the ways in which women, through their daily lives, shaped life in the camp housing and contributed to labor struggles. Um, and I'm including in the show notes not only a link to this thesis, but also a link to, um, on the DU website, um, stuff about the excavations at Berwind. 
So they have a whole thing about the archaeological project there. Oh, cool. Cool. So uh, Vernon excavated at the mine camp and was able to use. And so when I say mine camp, um, it they are little like prefab houses that are just like set. They're like four room houses that are just set up for the miners Slap to them live together. In. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so it's not they are intense. Like it's not <laughs> camping. It's, I'd say it's pretty intense. Yeah. Um, And so she was able to use historical records such as contemporary newspapers and mail order catalogs to gain more insight into the material conditions of the camp. And so sort of like how um, on the Arch Street Project, they found exactly the same like casket fittings and things like in catalogs. You got a sense of were these expensive? Were these popular? Like were they being trendy or being utilitarian? What was going on? Um, But she also had another had access to another line of evidence in her research, oral history. And so the resulting narrative from all of these sources of data is a really fascinating one and touches on several aspects of life and identity for the folks living in the mining camp. Not only do these households give a lens into women's work and women's lives, um, but something that I found really compelling was that the project as a whole looks at the evolution of miners and their families in this camp adopting the national identity as American. Hmm. So many of the people living there were born in another country. Um, and this is a period of time where um, anti-immigrant sentiments were high, as they imagine that What's usually that like? are here in the U.S. Um, and and so there were uh, so immigrant miners were a target of anti-immigrant sentiment and action. Um, so life in in the camp was an opportunity whether they chose it for themselves or not to adopt and conform to middle-class american ideals and um sort of starting in a victorian middle-class american ideal and then moving into the sort of interwar sort of yeah americanness um and this included things like households only housing a single nuclear family so they so didn't you're, have you're two and a half children and well, not your parent, not your parents, not your siblings. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And not borders, um, because something else that often happened was so some women's work was was managing borders and like the people who are renting rooms. This was another way to sort of dissolve those bonds among mm. workers. Interesting. And sort of, you know, keep them in a nice nuclear family. None of this weird stuff of having three generations in the same house, you know, like the sorts of things that were seen as foreign. Um, And so purchasing domestic wares that would please or impress visitors from the surrounding town, you know, you see like, Oh, you know, I'm just like you lady living in town. Like I also have a tea set for company sort of thing Um, and patriotic activities like victory gardening and canning. There's this really Mm -hmm. interesting part about how um, a lot of the, the the glass remains that were excavated and and analyzed from around, yeah, were around like food storage and preservation and like canning was an American thing to do. They, they were just, doing like Americans do. And so this Americanness was important in garnering sympathy to the cause of miners engaged in collective action for better pay and better working conditions. Uh, and it's something that I've never really thought about, even though I am the descendant of immigrant miners and my father was born in a mining camp. But so I actually like got kind of emotional, like reading 
Um, yeah, I can imagine reading, reading through this because it's something that I had never considered. Um, and I guess that's kind of what this is all about. <laughs> this is like what household archaeology and the study of households is about is finding new ways and new sources of data to think about familiar settings in entirely new ways. Yeah. And so I really recommend that folks read this because it's um, she does. I think it's I thought it was really great. Like she does a really great job of um, looking like going through her her lines of evidence Mm-hmm. And then and and getting a sense of what was happening in the household and then making the case for how the changes that were happening inside the house and so it's in the in the sphere of wives, um, the wife's ma- sphere made made conditions more conducive to successful collective action. Yeah. It was really awesome. Well, yeah, that is really awesome. And that sort of brings us back to sort of what we said up top, which is, well, two things. One is that household archaeology is really a consideration of scale. So you can look at these interactions between people in their in their groupings at different scales. And so for the example of the, the mining camps, it's the the scale of the wives and what they're doing, and then also the larger trends in the overall country that then are echoed in these individual households. And, and like concepts like victory gardening or mm-hmm. like evidence of status and, and, and sort of looking at like these norms and mores that are played out. Yeah. And then also like being reflective of the sort of economy yeah for sure of of the entire country yeah it's just it's just really interesting to think of you can now listeners pretty much go back to almost any episode we've ever done and kind of try and think about it it from this perspective because i mean like like amber said it's about finding new ways and new sources of data to think about familiar settings so when we think about um Things beyond what the elites were doing, things beyond monumental architecture and stuff like that. And we look at what the experience of the everyday person was. That's what we're doing. We're talking about household archaeology to some extent. Yeah. So that uh, you already used my joke that I wrote here, but that brings us home. Yeah. As it were. And wraps up the episode. So listeners, thank you as always for listening and for leaving reviews and stars on all the platforms that accept reviews and stars. It's really important for us. Um, You know, we don't really have a budget for advertising, so we get around by word of mouth. And so thank you for your words. We will be back in your ears soon with new episodes. And until then, you can find us on social media. On Facebook, we're at The Dirt Podcast. On Twitter, we're at Dirt Podcast. And on Instagram, we are at The Dirt Pod. And all of that, as well as all of our old episodes that you can listen to again and look for ways in which we do and do not (laughs) give attention to households. And we don't Um, know. All of that is on um, our website at thedirtpod.com. And that is also your gateway to such things as merch. If you, if you need household objects, do you need household <laughs> objects? Um, <laughs> you're welcome to get them. Um, and also if there's a topic that you are just 
hankering for an episode about and we don't seem to be getting to it anytime soon. Are we um, not getting your, your brainwaves? <laughs> sorry. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> um, you can you can sponsor an episode and then. Then we will do it. That we'll we will do waves. it. Yeah. But I mean, it has to be about something in archaeology. Yeah. I mean, we do some, some, <laughs> some exceptions may apply. Um, and then also uh, you can find all kinds of additional content um, and a back catalog of bonus episodes and, and new episodes coming out over on our Patreon. And um, we've got some stuff, we've got some stuff in the can in the pipeline, mm-hmm. the can line. The um, pipe can. The pipe nope. can. <laughs> we'll be on an episode of another show coming up here soon. Archie fantasies, uh, right? Archaeological fantasies. I think either oh. will will I think either of those will yield. We'll be sure to post it on our social media when it does yeah. come out. But we had a blast. Yeah, we had a ton of fun one. with Sarah. Yeah. And um also, we had a ton of fun on the live stream yeah, the other night. Yeah, thank you those of you who who came out and hung out with us. It was a great way to kind of break in our Twitch stream and figure out how to do it, even though Amber and I both had so much fun that we both forgot to press the record button. That notwithstanding, we do have the audio edited from that, and that'll be coming out very soon very for those soon. of you who missed it. Yeah. Um, and we'll be doing more live streams coming up. I need to clean my apartment before I let anybody else look at it. Hey, well, that's, that's, you know, (laughs) it's a motivator. Make sure these Twitch streams spark joy. So we got a ton of stuff coming up, got a ton of stuff out. We're really excited and all of it is possible, made possible by you. Thank you. The listener. Thank you so much for listening. Um, We love you. Y'all are great. Yeah. I'm quite fond of you. You're all right. That's all I got. Bye. Bye. This show is produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle, in Reno, Nevada, at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at arcpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.